around here. Captain! Signatures detected. Shields up. Signatures detected. Context Southfleet Command. What's happening? Context Southfleet Command. Delay that order. Context Southfleet Command. This is the captain. Context Southfleet Command. Get out of my chair. Chair, 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 chair. We have engaged the Klingons. Klingons. Hi, welcome to The Greatest Discovery. It's a Star Trek Discovery podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Franica. Adam, I have some uh, some beef to redress with you. Oh, no. I, you did, we, you we, do, you've done some fucking shit. I thought, I thought our beef was reserved for the non-recording portion of our <laughs> relationship. Well, uh, yeah, except for you put me on blast on social media. And uh, I have complaints. I uh, I don't know how I did that. I'm really racking my brain about what this could be about. So recently, somebody tweeted at both of us uh, about your Mark Twain impression <laughs> uh-huh. with regards to Greatest Discovery. This is Hey Jeff G tweeted this at both of us saying, I don't know what Ben's talking about. Adam does an amazing Mark Twain and I replied to him, it's terrible, source, every time he does it. Meaning, uh, meaning I have receipts. <laughs> I think, hey, Jeff G sounds like a, a person of style and taste. <laughs> well, you replied, I love seeing you've tweeted while recording a show. Yeah, I did do that. <laughs> Bullshit, Adam. I did not tweet that while recording a show. Here's my theory. You've probably got your like your Twitter feed on the algorithm where it shows you prominent tweets first and not, you know, just reverse historical timeline. So you probably saw that first thing after getting off of a record, but I distinctly remember sending that tweet in between recording shows. Ben, I'm almost famously uh, unable to be offended. <laughs> but that comes pretty close how dare you guess that i've fucked up my twitter algorithm in such a way that it would show me non non-timeline version tweets that's bullshit i don't know it's in time I mean, order always even though last night they did they did they fuck this up for you on my on my ipad i don't have the app but in the browser version on my ipad it won't let me like it switched me into popular tweet mode and not timeline mode and i can't get out of it on my ipad oh wow my experience is that it kicks you back into algorithm mode periodically just because they're so fucking desperate for you to use their stupid fucking algorithm and uh, and so you have to kind of keep an eye on it is the algorithm just meant to make viral tweets like is that a is that a viral nas system like <laughs> if you make popular tweets popular for a lot of people it makes them even more popular like like is that the thinking i guess so yeah like I, artificially inflate the tweet popularity of things it's one of these companies that thinks that engagement is the, like the highest ideal in any website so they don't understand that like currentness is actually is actually the product. Why don't these people in these boardrooms just give actual blowjobs to shareholders and <laughs> and leave the rest of us who use their products out of it? Yeah. I don't need to be around for that. I think that's a great point. 
Did you know that uh, our network colleague, uh, Lori Kilmartin, got kicked off of Twitter? I did know that. Yeah. I, she became a hero to me in that moment. Yeah. And then got kicked off again. <laughs> yeah. If I, was, uh, if, I, if I wasn't a mediocre white man, I'm sure I would have been kicked off of Twitter by now. Sure. Yeah, but unfortunately, that is what you are. That is what we are. We together are one mediocre white man. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're each half the man that we aspire to be, and yeah. somehow we add up to one. The math of that makes so much sense. Sort of whatever white guy. <laughs> well, uh... Do you want to uh, talk about uh, an actual remarkable man, a man that's a freedom fighter, you know, travels the stars to to find justice for his people, Adam? You talking about Hey Jeff G, the, the, <laughs> the Twitter person with great opinions about me and my comedy stylings? Talking about your boy Saru. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's get into it a bit. It's Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 6, The Sound of Thunder. The writer's room listening to a lot of uh, Imagine Dragons, I guess, <laughs> unfortunately. I recognize that I am a mediocre white guy, but I don't really know what that music is. Most show titles have been uh, deep literary references or, or something. This one, pretty vanilla. <laughs> well, it's another one of your non-log logs, Adam. The, these voiceovers that they're using that are that don't start with a star date or any uh, housekeeping business. Yeah, is Star Trek Discovery a Shonda Rhimes show? That's what I'm starting to wonder. Didn't you already make that joke? (laughs) No, I made that joke in a different way, specifically about Grey's Anatomy. But now it's like they're doing this at Robert McKee. Like, (laughs) I, I I don't understand a show being so good at at creating characters through their behavior and their interactions with each other, pivoting all of a sudden into going up into their heads. Yeah. I, I'm not crazy about it. These VOs seem to do something slightly different from what your average captain's log used to do. You know? They're not like... like Saru is like getting introspective about the idea of taking the place you're from with you, you know, you can take the Kelpian out of Kaminar, but you can't take the Kaminar out of Kelpian. They sound like they're talking to the viewer. Like, it's not like they don't, it's, it's not like my problem is they don't sound like logs. It sounds like he's addressing us. So, Saru misses his threat ganglia. Yeah, it's sort of like phantom limb, right? He keeps reaching for them and they're not there. And uh, Arium and uh, and Tilly have been digging through all this data from the sphere that uh, that caught their ship up, and uh, <laughs> I really like Tilly's description of this uh, of this data dump as a nice big slice of galaxy pie. Yeah, she's barely in this episode, but she got a pretty nice line there. It, I almost felt like that was an ad lib. Kind of feel like uh, Arium's the only member of the crew that wouldn't be annoyed doing a long-term project with Tilly. <laughs> yeah, she can just turn off her ears. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we get a, a moment with Saru in Six Bay, and um, Dr. Culber is also in there. Hugh. Dr. Culber seems very, like, emotionally frazzled by what he's been through. Does not... You know, he's like kind of recoiling from a, a friendly touch and 
you know, kind of shell-shocked by the experience he's had. One thing that is kind of amazing, though, is that he was definitely not skipping arm day when he was on the mycelial plane of existence. Those guns are dope. Ben, in my notes is the line, Wilson Cruz doesn't skip triceps day. (laughs) I love it when that happens. Yeah, uh, you're spot on with your description of his emotional state. He doesn't seem to be feeling anything besides momentary fear, and then he retreats into into blank. And yeah. there, in every scene that he's in, I think he, I think Culber only looks at Saru once, and it's for a half a second. And the rest of the time, he looks straight ahead. He's not making eye contact with anyone. I'm glad that this stuff is in here. I was really worried with the previews of this episode that we weren't going to get any follow-up on what's going on with Dr. Culber. Yeah. It feels like a very small amount relative to how big that story was. Yeah. But also, like, I felt the same way about Saru in the last episode. So just, I, I feel like a strange order. Still feels like a strange order. Saru has some nice things to say to Culber, but there's an environment being cultivated around him that is of such uh, optimism and, hey, good news, Culber, like your body's perfect, <laughs> where clearly the patient is not feeling right, that that like there's this conflict where, right. where everything yeah. on the surface appears to be okay, but the patient is telling you he's not okay. And that's very frustrating. Yeah. And not only is Dr. Pollard kind of breezing past that, but also Stamets is. Yeah. Like Stamets doesn't seem to care that much about the emotional state of the man we now think is his husband. Yeah. It's sort of piggybacking onto that earlier point when when Stamets tells Culber's story to the doctor about the scar. Like, I mean, I was a patient at a hospital for like close to a month when I was in high school. And one of the most irritating parts of that experience was like not being allowed the agency of telling your own story. Yeah. And when a doctor and a family member is talking and you're right there, it is incredibly frustrating for a patient. And like, you can see this, you can see Culber going through this. Like he's correcting Stamets on the story because it's not his story really to tell. Yeah. And it's it's just very irritating. So perhaps more well-drawn than I thought. It sounds like this kind of comports with something you've experienced in real life. Yeah, it does. And it's starting to paint a picture about Culber where it's not looking like this is going to have a happy ending. They're not right. even teasing the idea that he's getting better at all. Right. Well, uh, we get a McLaughlin group. Issue one. A very dizzy-making McLaughlin group. Issue one. Between Captain Pike, Commander Burnham, and Ash Tyler, who are kind of talking through what everybody knows about these these uh, starbursts, these uh, or these red bursts, red beacons. What do we call them? <laughs> who knows? They're little they're little blips on the thing. Trying to trying to put together something when they all get called up to the bridge by Saru, uh, who has picked up another one of these things. Uh, there's a brief, pretty funny moment where Saru like is chilling in the captain's seat, and Pike is like, um, "I'm waiting." 
And I guess this is to like illustrate that Saru is starting to like not take shit from anybody and learn how to do that. Is that how you interpreted that? Yeah, I mean it is either Saru being oblivious and and distracted or he's doing this as some sort of weird power move. They have a couple of confrontations in this episode and and this sort of seems like laying the groundwork for that, the idea that Saru is not going to back down from fights anymore. <laughs> Even when the fights are over a chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, um, you know, and, and what they've been talking about with these red signals uh, is that uh, they, they do not seem to be coincidences. You know, the idea that, you know, they got... Uh, called over to this asteroid so they could pick up a chunk that they needed to save the planet at the next red signal and that the people on that planet had been saved by the red angel from a nuclear bomb like it seems like there is intentionality and agency in the ways these things are are uh, being deployed across the galaxy so coincidences can head to the exits <laughs> this shit is on purpose and the conflict that arises out of this realization is that Pike is on team, Red Angel being benevolent, and Ash is on team. We can't trust them to... Wow, you oh. just skipped right to the end. Okay, well, episode over. <laughs> well, no, I mean, this is an argument that, that happens here. Like, I fairly so, early yeah. on. Like, Ash, even though it is revealed that, like, the Red Angel may be... Or these red beacons may be uh, trying to get their attention intentionally. Like, there's never a moment where Ash is trusting good intentions from them, or or yeah. that or that this is good news in any way. Like, like Ash is treating this as something to defend against at all times. And Pike, from the beginning, and I wasn't cutting to the end and making the statement, but like Pike stays true to his inclination, and so does Ash for, throughout the ep. I've wondered, like, I can kind of understand Pike's being an ideologue about this, but Ash is so new to Section 31, but he seems really dipped in their worldview, you yeah, know? Yeah, I think that's an interesting tidbit. Anyways, this uh, this new signal is in orbit of Kaminar, Saru's homeworld, which is outside the Federation and a kind of isolationist uh, planet. The Federation has, it turns out, been in contact with the Ba'ul, the uh, the predator species. Uh, but they were dr- summoned there actually by Saru. That uh, that's something that wasn't really elucidated in the Saru short treks episode. But he, in in like building his transmitter out of Ba'ul technology, brought the Federation to his world. They interacted with the Ba'ul, but. Saru got offered asylum by Giorgio because he had, in fact, been the one doing the transmitting. There is a ton of exposition university happening in this moment. Uh, The show Medium assumes that you haven't seen the short trek. Yeah, Um, Yeah, they cut about 90% of the clips from that short treks episode into this (laughs) description. It brings to mind the idea that, like... What were the short treks required viewing? And if they were, why wasn't that footage just a part of the episode and a short treks episode about something else? 
I was thinking that like you could have just cut them together, like they add up to about the length of an episode. I right. think. Yeah. You could you could just have had like a kind of anthology episode, like uh, you know one of those movies that's got like different vignettes that don't yeah. actually connect to each other. Uh, the episode was directed by the same guy, Douglas Arniokoski. Oh, interesting. So they kept it in the family thematically. Yeah. This guy also, uh, he does CW's Arrows, Criminal Minds, and Fox's Sleepy Hollow. But check this out, Ben. Uh, he AD'd or second unit directed for a bunch of Robert Rodriguez films. Whoa. Like, like almost all of them. And wow. so that shot in the... Uh, in the McLaughlin group where the camera is basically racing around the merry-go-round style felt a little frenetically <laughs> Robert Rodriguez. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, like for those not in the know, a, a second unit director is basically the director of all of the things that the main director can't direct. Right. So right. while Robert Rodriguez is shooting stuff with primary actors, uh, oftentimes a second unit director will be, Getting uh, establishing shots or, yeah, or getting, cutaways like, the and helicopter stuff. shots of, the, of yeah. the area or yeah crowd shots stuff that is like you can do it concurrently with more costly main action yeah they work together with the with the feature director pretty closely and this is a uh, this is a a job path that you'll see quite a bit a lot of second unit directors will become directors later on in their career and a lot of their uh, creative decisions are informed by the directors that they work for and i think that's in play here the only person in the uh in this universe that really knows anything about having a second unit is ash tyler because he used to be a klingon <laughs> ben the thing I need to tell you, Ben, the most crucial credit uh -huh. of Douglas Arniakoski's career, second AD on two episodes of Pee-wee's Playhouse. Wow. Oh, so he was an AD also? Yeah. Wow. That's it. Because like, I don't see ADs make the transition to director that often, I feel like. Yeah. Because AD is much more of a production, like organizing people and keeping them on a, a timeline job. I AD'd a project after college, and I hated that job. Yeah, it's a shitty job. You can imagine why, because like you're the guy telling people what to do instead of yeah, making creative decisions. You're, you're telling people they're late. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are people that are great at it. Like I pe admire people that. that People that love organizing things are fabulous at that job, and I love not organizing things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he bounced around between uh, AD and second unit director uh, wow. up until now. So. Very interesting. Yeah. He's probably just like you. <laughs> you think? Yeah. I don't know. He probably spent a month in a hospital also. <laughs> That's why that scene's in there. Uh-huh. So this is a bit of a tricky situation because the Ba'ul are the contacted species here. They do not uh, answer the hails. So they start to discuss the idea of like sending an away team down to talk to the Kelpians. Like, hey, you know anything about this uh, this red angel, these, uh, these signals? Anything you can tell us would be great. And uh, so Pike is kind of giving Burnham this job and Saru is like, I am standing right here. 
This is my home world. Shouldn't you be sending me? I offer my experience. To disregard it is to disregard the suffering of generations of Kelpians. Yeah, he kind of throws a fit. A very unsaru-like fit. A very unbecoming of an officer fit, too. Yeah. Like, it is really like, it. it's not like a, sir, can I speak to you in private? It's like, it is like a stamping your feet and screaming in front of everybody fit. And it almost looks like he and Pike are going to start throwing punches at each other. Saru is going through some changes, changes that accompany some emotional outbursts. Yeah, yeah. His body is changing in ways that are, uh, you know, new and different. It feels like people are going to get in between them before Michael Burnham eventually does. Like, we do a bunch of cutting around, and people stand up from their stations ready to get in the middle. Reese and Ash Tyler are both like, come on. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they're kind of spoiling for it. Yeah. It's an interesting scene because what Saru has learned is that his people are being needlessly killed, and he realizes that, like, everything he's ever known is part of a deep injustice that has been visited upon his people and he really wants to right that wrong like captain pike is doing like the white privilege like yeah i know that's a problem for you but right now what we need to do is this and uh i felt like that was a very like uh, like a very cool star trek way of exploring an issue like that you know yeah and to Michael Burnham's credit, she she gets in the middle of them and actually talks Pike into letting Saru get what he wants, which was pretty surprising, I thought. Which was to uh, clothe themselves in the ragged robes of an about-to-close day spa. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, they're in tatters. I love this fabric. I wish I had a... Uh, like a bathrobe made out of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a nice weight for Los Angeles because you don't want like, you know, I have like a, I have a bathrobe that's like that waffly stuff on the outside right. and then terry cloth on the inside, but it's, it's essentially two towels thick. Yeah. That's too much. That's, that's just more than I need most of the year. Are they fused like a, like a suit would be? Uh, no, I mean, they're, it's not a canvas garment. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, would that make it better or worse? It would make it far more expensive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, putting some structure in your in your bathrobe is not really something that most people want. Yeah, you don't want that bathrobe standing up in the corner. <laughs> well, I guess I'm stuck with the velvet fog. Saru so talks about his father being having been a priest, and the priests are actually the go-betweens between the Baouls and the Kelpians. And so his his father he describes as an unwitting collaborator or a Vichy Kelpian, if you will. <laughs> My father was a war criminal. <laughs> He fed so many of my friend and family to the baul. <laughs> Who pay him to do this? Why was he so willing to betray his people? <laughs> yeah, an actual apt moment for for Vichy French guy to return. <laughs> They don't happen often. 
gotta gotta grab them when they're available. Yeah. So they bump into the new priest who, uh, when she turns around, we recognize as Serana, the uh, the sister from the Short Treks episode. She kept the family business going when when their dad died. I love how Serana doesn't recognize Saru until he lowers his hood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean I don't, is Serana I don't be a Kelpian guy. racist? Yeah, but Kelpians do all kind of look alike. <laughs> she's got she's kind of the one distinctive one, right? Yeah, it's she's like smoother than the rest. She's smoother than the rest. I guess the other ones are all like not as gaunt as Doug Jones, so they're they're a little bit more filled out Kelpians. Those are the ones that the bow will really like eating. Oh yeah. Yeah, nice. delicious. A little more meat on the bone, uh-huh. you know? <laughs> Serana gets a scene uh, of introduction with Michael Burnham where uh, she's blown away by the magic of the Universal Translator. She touches Michael Burnham's hand. And Ben, I was fucking positive that she was going to touch Michael Burnham's hair. <laughs> <laughs> like it, That would have been weird. <laughs> like in a, in a science fiction playing to how like fucked up contemporary culture, white culture especially can be sometimes like yeah. That would have been an interesting comment. Yeah, yeah. I I mean in this episode especially. Yeah. Um but uh fortunately she does not. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean like she invites them in for tea and in while they're having the tea is when she kind of turns from being really glad to see her brother to being mad at him for having kind of abandoned them without explaining where he was going. Ben, do you think Michael Burnham likes the tea or doesn't like the tea? Oh, man. I don't feel like I saw her taking a lot of sips of it. They gave her a shot at center frame drinking the tea, but they cut away not long after the reaction. And then you see her in profile later taking another sip. If she hates it, she fights against that that feeling pretty hard. I was hoping for more of a reaction. Yeah. Yeah. She's trying to be polite. She's she's not uh she's not the uh lady that's traveling with Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom. I wonder if it tastes like salt water given the rest of the stuff Saru drinks and its salinity. Oh wow. I don't know. That would be Maybe bad, right? I could see a uh an umami tea being nice. Yeah. It would be like broth, right? I guess it would, we would just call that soup. Yeah. yeah. This is why you have returned. Uh, Serana is pissed at the realization that Saru has not come back for the express reason of visiting family, but instead Saru's on about the Red Angel. And this, right. this offends Serana deeply. It's like, we've been for 18 years grieving your death, and you're here just like on some other shit? Yeah. Doesn't seem uh, doesn't seem like a nice way to do it, Saru. Yeah. Why didn't you come back before? And it's like, y- you totally understand both sides of that, right? Like why that is so hurtful to her and why he can't explain more and why he couldn't come back earlier. They're both valid positions. When you visit family, you you don't want to tell the family that you're actually there on a business trip and <laughs> you're incidentally coming over for a dinner or two. Yeah, I've definitely gone to the Bay Area on business trips a couple of times and not told my parents that I was in town. Yeah, got to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's just easier that way, you know. It's because both the reason for the business trip will inevitably fail and your visit with the family. Like, 
They can only right. be their own thing. They can't be a shared yeah. thing. They just don't work together. A planetary-sized banger forces Saru and Michael Burnham to just beam back to the Discovery. And uh, the sound of the didgeridoo announces the arrival of the Ba'ul. I thought it was interesting that Serana dumps him out the second yeah. the banger drops and does not seem to notice that Saru doesn't. Yeah. And I thought that uh, it would have been nice to have a little bit of dialogue like, where, where's your threat dick? Get, get it going. Hey, if you want me to turn around while you, while you get that thing going, like, I can do that. I can give you some privacy. <laughs> would you like to watch a video of the Ba'ul to, to get it started? <laughs> we have a selection of magazines. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a Baul finger man or a Baul backspike man? <laughs> yeah, so so Burnham and uh, Saru get back to the discovery pretty quickly and are yellow alerted up to the bridge where Pike is on the radio with a very spooky voiced Baul. Pike is like, yeah, 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 but we're here to investigate this, this, uh, this red burst, and you know we we don't have anything to do with your arrangement. That's neither here nor there. We're just trying to find this red angel. Like, what can you tell us about it? And the Baul really like pushes the issue. Like, I understand how hypocritical a comment like this might be coming from me. But I really struggled to understand what the Ba'ul was saying uh, at times in this episode. So much so that I I turned on the subtitles for yeah. for this dialogue. It's it seemed at times as though different voices were doing Ba'ul voice, and one of the voices was just very difficult to understand. Effectively scary though, like that part they nailed. But if you can't understand yeah. what he's saying, then what's the point? I've noticed that some of the voices on this show seem overmodulated at times. Yeah. And like far be it from me or us to criticize sound, being that we work in an audio medium and are bad at sound. Sure. But it's weird cuz like sometimes like Michael Burnham will just be on the bridge talking to somebody and it sounds like her her vocals are clipping or distorting like they're improperly recorded or mixed or something. And I don't know what to make of that. But yeah, like I, I had the same problem as you. Like the Baul were were hard for me to parse. Yeah, Saru gets starts to flip out on this on this Baul. Uh, there, it's just an audio only communication. But he starts yelling and screaming. Pike is defending Saru, but Saru like really can't let the issue drop and and actually gets kicked off the bridge. There's a little bit of of parallel conflict going on if. If you'll allow me to film studies this a little bit, like what ha- what's happening to Culber is happening to Saru on the bridge. Everyone's talking about him while he's in the room. Yeah. And he's insulted wow. by the idea that the Ba'ul uh, want him back. He's not willing to allow people to bargain over his life while he's there. Yeah, I mean, it's not like Pike is actually entertaining this, but the fact that it's about him as though he's not there... Really pisses him off. I think this is a great Pike episode. Uh, The way he articulates his defense of Saru, I think, is 
super Starfleet efficient and yeah. and great. Yeah, I dug it. Uh, he's he's not one of yours. He's one of ours. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, makes you feel like Pike is the guy you want in your corner, whether or not he's always like great at being a captain. One thing I noticed in this scene is as things are heating up, like weapons are getting hot, uh, emotions are getting frazzled. Ten orbital defense ships are deployed. Ash is in the background talking to Reese at Tactical, and Ash is basically like running around from station to station, gesticulating and talking, (laughs) and it's easy to miss. Uh, This is something I only caught on the second viewing, but like, I like seeing foreground background stuff like this take place like you can tell ash ash the entire episode is on team blow it up whatever they're talking about (laughs) seriously also when saru gets kicked off the bridge for kind of talking over the captain and not be you know he's like he is not de-escalating this this conflict and really it also felt a little bit to me like first episode season one with Michael Burnham. Yeah. Like Saru is like in that position now. Um, so he actually like walks onto the elevator. And I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a wonder of him walking into the elevator from the bridge, like waiting for a while. And then the doors open and he's in hallways. Ooh. Which is, uh, which indicates to me that either those hallways are like right on the other, you know, they can like rotate it 180 degrees or something, or they may have actually built two levels of, of the disco set. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know. But, uh, he, uh, heads to the transporter room and sets a countdown for himself. And Michael Burnham actually comes in with a dustbuster to stop him. She like predicted that he would try and go down to the surface. They're really two peas in a pod, these two. Yeah. Yeah, they really are. Uh, some great work by Sonequa Martin-Green in this scene, too. I really I really felt for her conflict, especially after Saru beams away. That, yeah. uh, that push in on her face, I thought, was really well done. I agree. Uh, you know, the, the logic bomb that he drops on her is like, I'm going to save my sister. She's the one that they're, like, threatening directly. And don't you think you would do the same for your brother? And that really, like, stops her in her tracks. It's like that thing that you say at the end of an argument that is the thing that you just will never forget. Like, it is a... You can see a shift in her at this point. Yeah. The the fact that Saru is back down there satisfies what the Ba'ul wanted. Uh, they, they just... They just need to control the narrative for the Kelpians, so... What's scary uh, is, like, the moment Saru beams down, he disappears from sensors pretty quickly after that. Yeah, the Ba'ul are, like, you know, they're described as not being as advanced as Starfleet, but they're pretty advanced. Like, they're they're not an insignificant threat. Yeah, it feels like they, I mean, weapons-wise, perhaps they're not as advanced, but in uh, in the technology of hide-and-seek... I think they're very good. Yeah. So Serana and Saru wind up in a Baul prison place. <laughs> I don't know quite how to describe this, but... Uh, I think that was great. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of that room that Riker was in in the episode where he was in the play about being insane. Right. Um, 
some exocomps come down the hall and uh, pin Saru to the wall, and then uh, and then Armis comes out of a a big pool in the middle of the room and starts kind of uh, you know villain monologuing at Saru, and um, one of the things that Doctor Pollard told Saru is that the the like cavities in his head that his ganglia used to be in are now being filled with cartilage <laughs> and Saru kind of has like Dilophosaurus uh, gills that pop out and shoot darts at the Baul. Yeah, uh, darts that Dr. Pollard alluded to back in sickbay. Like again, Dr. Pollard is making observations about the changes in Saru's body and then like releasing him into general population. She's like, you've got weird spikes growing in your head. You feel okay about that? Saru's like, yeah. She's like, okay, great. Go back to work. <laughs> so uh, the Baul made arrangements for this, had a uh, had a, a force field in place to prevent being darted, but uh, it seems like was able to predict that this might happen because uh, what's described here is that Saru is the first Kelpian in a very, very long time to go through the Vaharai and come out the other side. And what we kind of come up, what we kind of learn, like in this process, is that through researching information from the Galaxy Pie slice that they got from the Sphere, uh, like Burnham and Tilly are able to figure out that the Kelpians and the Baul have actually kind of traded the apex position on their planet a couple of times and at one time the kelpians hunted and ate the baul almost to extinction and that this is kind of like the shoe is just on the other foot now but uh but past the vaharai the kelpians are in fact a predatory race the baul look even more unpleasant than the kelpians to eat if if their hunting involved consumption you know yeah. Well, so one thing, like you, you had a prediction on a recent episode that the Baul and the Kelpians were going to wind up being one and the same. And I feel like under all the gunk, I wondered if that was going to be true. Like the the piece of information that undercuts that somewhat is that they're able to detect three distinct life signs on the planet over the course of its history. Right. And one is Baul, one is Kelpian pre Vaharai and one is Kelpian post Vaharai. So it does seem like the Baul are different in some way, but I, you know, like looking at that black gunk, I wondered, is this a disguise? Is this, is this character that is being presented to Serana and Saru meant to obscure what the Baul actually look like rather than be what the, because also like the Kelpians would be fucking insane to eat that, you know, that just looks disgusting. <laughs> You're a pretty adventurous eater, Ben. So for you to say that you wouldn't eat a baul is is really something, I think. Yeah, yeah. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. It's weird that in an episode that we see so much of the baul and their technology, like, could you state with any confidence how many baul there are on this compound they're on? Like, how does no, this battle like, steer the ship? How do, like, what what is actually going on practically in terms of, of how their society is run and how their technology works? Are they, are they controlling it with their minds? Like, what is boy, this? I don't know. And and the, the thing is described as being 50 kilometers across yeah. 
the like there's a, there's a lot uh insane about this one thing insane is like so they so the bow will like sentences them to death and a bunch more exocomps come out and they're gonna like face drill saru and serana to death but saru also has super strength now he like he's like he like lenny's all the exocomps and then like pulls their components out and is able to tap into the entire network of the baul by like plugging some pieces into a floor panel this is like data <laughs> plugging his brain into the borg level of <laughs> level of leap right here yeah <laughs> like it just doesn't seem like you put a computer that's able to do that anywhere near the room where you're holding the people that are like that know the the worst secret you've kept for 2000 years. I this part made me laugh and also like the half measure with the horror of this scene was questionable to me, right? You've got this big black pool in the middle of the room and you don't threaten to drown either of them in that pool. Like the Baul itself is like a Japanese horror film girl with wet hair. Like, <laughs> like there's so much scary about this scene. The idea that the pool isn't used as a weapon seemed like a, a bridge they had to cross. And so to turn Saru into an action hero where he's just punching shit out of the air, I kind of wish that this scene doubled down on how scary the moment was. It, it Like, can you think of a messier, less efficient way to kill somebody than pin them up against a wall and then have, like, the the thing that comes out of uh, Dick Dastardly's wheel, like, go into their face? Yeah. <laughs> like, that is just going to spray blood all over the place. Yeah. You just hold Saru and Serana under, under the black pool until the bubbles stop, and then you throw them out into the lake. Then you're done. Yeah. yeah. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. <laughs> Why do I have to think of all these ways to kill people? This is the thing that they should hire us for <laughs> on Disco after they let us put on some loaf and get blown into space. After my final thoughts on this episode, I will never be hired on this show. <laughs> wow. Okay. Saru manages to like blow in a call to the Disco. The plan that they come up with is that they have isolated the audio frequency that the that the red sphere used to trigger his vaharai and they're going to kind of like super trigger everybody on kaminar to go through it all at once and i don't i didn't quite understand the logic of why it would happen so much faster cuz saru had like had like a week of feeling under the weather before his ganglia fell out right you're saying that they should have given them a trigger warning <laughs> yeah you're advocating for that yeah i can see that i'm generally pro trigger warning <laughs> this is a fucking sprint to the finish line of this episode with the with yeah. the logic here so they all the pylons that are in every kelpian village are now being used as speakers that blast out this uh pink note i guess <laughs> <laughs> all all the Kelpians are like writhing in agony. You get a show title. You get a show title. <laughs> Everyone's dropping show titles. Um and uh and then the Baul 
flip their shit. They they are. Uh, yeah, I think um, I think it's Pike that says we have angered the Baul, which is a direct quote from you every time you've eaten nachos, <laughs> <laughs> and you run off to the men's room. Um, the Baul city comes up out of the lake. Uh, all of the all of the pylons uh, start going weapons hot. This uh, this like network of lasers starts covering the planet. Looks like uh, looks like the Baul are going to genocide the Kelpians rather than let the secret get out. And uh, it is just then when uh, the the Red Angel appears, and uh, the Red Angel kind of like kind of like bursts into existence in space a couple of times on its way toward the planet surface. It kind of like blinks in and out of existence in little puffs of red. This moment occurs after the disco has decided to destroy these uh, these pylons and fire down onto the surface. I, I mean, and and they've been arguing about whether the prime directive applies here, or, and, and like and like to what extent it applies. This would be a fairly a, a fairly extravagant intervention by Starfleet standards to destroy all the pylons. The they weighed the pros and cons of. An extinction event and a versus a genocide in three lines of dialogue. It is so <laughs> fucking breathtaking. Yeah. The plan they arrive on is that is the wimpy plan. Ben Disco will gladly trigger a revenge extinction thousands of years from now for a global Vaharai today. <laughs> That's what they choose. Yeah, but the Red Angel puts a stop to the genocide by like disconnecting. The Baul's set up, unplugging all of all of their pylons, basically. Saru and Serana kind of make a commitment to the idea of, like, we're going to try and find a way to make balance that does not involve one or the other species being subjugated. And uh, we're going to be we're just going to be cool with each other from here on out. I love the confidence of a Serana in this moment to like assume that none of the other Kelpians are going to associate her with her father's past. Like, <laughs> why would anyone trust her? Her father was like the instrument of death for millions on this planet. Well, millions? I don't know about that. Could have been millions of people in this fishing village. We just don't see them. Yeah. <laughs> They're all so quiet, quietly a, a fishing village with the population of Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so now we've gotten a pretty good look at the uh, at the Red Angel. Ash Tyler gets to uh, gets the gets the info from Pike. We've talked about that already, so I don't know if we need to like go back over all of that, but. TLDR, Ash Tyler still thinks Red Angel bad. Pike still thinks Red Angel good. You and I think Red Angel ex machina. <laughs> I literally have read the phrase Red Angel ex machina written down on my, on my notes here. Jesus, what a mess. <laughs> yeah. A lot of parallel thinking going on this episode. Yeah. Hey, Ben, um, what, am I, yeah. what am I doing right now? Giant jack-off motion with your hands. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, Do you feel like there's a reporting relationship between Ash and Pike? Like, like Pike seems to be stepping to this meeting with Ash, uh, 
not because he has to, but because he wants to. This is like a goodwill thing, right? Yeah, like uh, being courteous to the Section 31 guy, even though he doesn't have to. Even though Ash would not in a million years do this if roles were reversed. Well, he's leading by example. Yeah. Uh, And then, uh, you know, in maybe a nod to the way incest porn is kind of like the main kind of porn now, uh, Saru shows Serana the window, (laughs) a dating move that Starfleet officers have done for time immemorial. He does to his own sister. (laughs) Very kinky. (laughs) (laughs) Gross. I I wasn't going to jump into the middle of that comment. I was just going to let you take it to its natural conclusion. I wanted to see where we were going there. Very satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> That's the Picard seduction technique. Who knew that Saru invented it on his own sister? Uh, this ain't Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> when Saru got a glimpse of the Red Angel, his eyesight is such that he got a better look at it than anyone else ever has. Yeah, mechanized suit. Yeah. High technology. Real Robert Downey Jr. situation, perhaps. Humanoid. Tell you what, Ben, I was a little humanoid watching this episode. Did you like it? You know, I liked it more the second time I watched it. I'm trying not to watch, like, the like my process has been I watch it the first time for funsies, and then the second time I take notes. Same. And... I'm trying really hard not to be the guy that is watching to find problems with. Same. You know, like I don't, I, I, and I, and I've also really been like looking forward to new episodes of this show. And like, I, I already feel like I'm looking forward to the next episode, even though the last two have seemed a little off peak. Um, but yeah, I did, I, I did watch this last night the first time feeling like, I didn't think it was great and it had a lot of problems, but then like watching it again this morning, I felt like some, some of it made more sense to me and some of the things that felt like problems the first time through didn't feel as bad the second time through. So I don't know. I'm a, I, I definitely don't think that this is show at its best, but it didn't, I didn't hate it, I guess. Mm. You hated the last episode, right? Yeah, I did I did not like the last episode. This one felt like fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. Just yeah. fine. How about you? Your comments made me think about how this show is succeeding scene to scene. But this is the second episode in a row that I feel like is not succeeding as an entire work. Mm-hmm. And where last episode, I was forgiving of it because it felt like an anomaly. This is two episodes in a row where I feel like uh, it's it was kind of a mess. Like, where the crew is no longer solving anything themselves, right? They are using the Sphere's information to solve this mystery specifically. It's like uh, taking a test and the test is open notes. So, like, the satisfaction you feel for a mission well done doesn't feel earned yeah and i really feel like star trek when it's at its best 
the crew rises to a challenge and earns the success that they get at the end of it. And that has not happened for a couple of episodes now. They're, they're, the shortcut to success is what's happening. And right. that combined with people getting close to death only to be saved at the last moment, it's feeling more and more like empty calories. Like I don't watch a lot of CW shows, but I recognize that part of their popularity is this kind of format. Like right. super yeah. glossy, super good looking, uh, life-threatening problem saved at the last moment, and then another one next week. And that DNA is now strongly in this show. It's so weird. Like this was at a season that they added an episode to. Like that was announced at some point. Like, oh, there's going to be one more than we initially said. And like we had, we've had like some paint by numbers episodes now. Yeah. Where it seems like you don't need you don't need to do two of this. Yeah. I mean, I alluded to it at the top of the episode, but like this, the doubling down of of like we're exchanging character moments for voiceovers here in a way that I think is toxic to the storytelling. We're writing things that that make the writer sound smart instead of a character feel real. Like with whether it's like references to literature that like that conversation that Saru and Burnham have at the very end like I'm tired of listening to the writers tell me how smart they are. Like I know you're smart. It's like a Tom Robbins novel. It's like, okay, fucking we get it. <laughs> you you have a lot of literary references to draw on. I had a really dark thought uh, the more I thought about this episode and that I have a theory about what's happening in season two that I want to share with you. And that is Aaron Harberts and Gretchen Berg were let go of the show right. in the time between season one and two uh, for for cause. And And it seems like they did a bunch of the beginning of the season, right? And... Their reputation was such that uh, they were extremely hard on the writers in the writer's room. And I wonder if much in the way that like when steel is turned into forged steel for strength, Mm -hmm. I wonder if there is not strict enough uh, EP oversight or creative oversight on these teleplays before they're going into production. Because... Mm. I think these teleplays are steel and not forged steel when they're being made. Like they, they just need something else. And if it's not a Harberts or Berg thing, I feel like there needs to be another filtration before they're getting made. I, and I'm, I'm not saying we need to bring Gretchen and Aaron back. I'm not advocating for that at all. And I'm not forgiving (laughs) any of the, any of the shit that they did, but like, I feel like the prisoners are in control of the asylum right now in a way that something feels unfinished about these episodes we're seeing. Um, Well, the next episode is the halfway mark. I don't have a great sense of the timeline, but I wonder if I wonder if it starts if the ship starts to write at a certain point as a result of the of the staff changes that they made. We're really at a point where like all these coincidences and like lack of consequences for people on the crew are either going to be corrected and explained down the road in such right. a way that like we've talked about this before like the quality of binge watching season 1 versus taking it episode by episode like the difference in that i wonder if we're going to get that again with season 2 because right now i mean i could see season 2 turning a corner and 
retconning itself in such a way where all this makes sense, but episode to episode, how much of this can you get away with while still remaining satisfying? I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know. I still love the show. I'm concerned about it because this is just a good looking show that's, that makes you feel good at the end of it because uh, our, our, the people we like lived. Right. But there's something deeper that Star Trek does that, that makes it more than that, that it's not doing here. I agree. Well, do you want to uh, check out our Priority One messages? Make ourselves feel a little bit better? Priority One messages never disappoint, Ben. They'll always love you. <laughs> priority One message from Starfleet coming in on Secured Channel. Adam, we have a Priority One message here of a personal nature. It's from Bob Murphy, and it's for Michael Murphy goes like this. Thanks for introducing me to the GG crew. I'm on board the greatest discovery train. <laughs> That's the message. Woo-woo! <laughs> Come chicka, on, chicka, ride chicka, this train. Chicka, 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 and ride it up. <laughs> Was that the crazy music video with like the uh, the the train suspended from the ceiling, like the the animatronic puppet train? I remember that music video being fucking nuts. I don't remember that one. That sounds great. Yeah. God, it was amazing in the '90s when they had millions of dollars to make fucking music videos with. I miss just having MTV on with music videos playing all day, just in the background of my day. It seems insane that they're like. That should just be something that is on a smart TV, right? Like, it could just pull them off of YouTube and just play a playlist of them? In the same way that you can ask a smart device to play all songs by so-and-so or play hits from the 80s, like, you should ask a TV to do that, and it should do that. Play all of the 90s R&B music videos where the ladies have tank tops and giant pants on. I'm talking waterfalls. I'm talking about uh, <laughs> anything by Aaliyah. Oh, wow. I do miss those Aaliyah music videos. It always felt like going on vacation. Any, anything uh, by uh, Destiny's Child, you know? Yeah. Giant pants, tight tank top, very crazy eye makeup. I want it all. I want a condom eye patch. Yeah. Uh, well, anyways, Bob and Michael, uh, thanks for the P1, and thanks uh, thanks to Michael for putting Bob onto the show. Uh, Bob's like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> what are these guys talking about? Uh, if, if you would like to send a P1 and have us branch into a very perplexing music conversation, you know what to do. You head to MaximumFun.org slash Jembotron. It's 100 bucks for a personal message and 200 for a commercial message. They really help us cover the cost of producing this program. Top of the morning to you. This episode is brought to you by the St. Patrick's Day Shamrock Shavers Manscaped. This year, don't just chase rainbows. Make your own pot of gold and groom your little leprechaun with the leaders in Below the Kilt Care. I didn't make that up. That's actual copy sent to us by the great folks over at Manscaped who make the shaver that I use downstairs on my little leprechaun. And uh, I recommend it. Uh, it works great. Uh, trimming the hedges in your Irish garden isn't just for below the belt. You can complete your look with 
their new signature Beard Hedger Pro kit, plus Handyman Electric Face Shaver. Everything they make is really good and high quality, and this new trimmer that they have comes with two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blades. They've got one for a classic trim and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. So get 20% off plus free shipping with code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and get free shipping with code TREK at manscaped.com. This St. Patrick's Day, make sure your little hairy leprechaun is luckier than ever with Manscaped. I have tried so many meal services over the years. After all, I am a podcast host. And I gotta tell you, Factor Meals is my favorite. Why? Because I can go from, what am I gonna have for dinner, to eating a great dinner in exactly two minutes with Factor Meals. And don't sleep on their smoothies either. I got six of these in the box this week. Mango, tropical fruit, strawberry or banana. They're all amazing. They're like meal supplements I can enjoy while I'm on the go. Head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use the code trek50 to get 50% off. Again, that's the code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. (laughs) Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Ben. Uh, what's that, Adam? Did you discover yourself a drunk Shimoda? Incredible. Drunk Shimoda. I did. Uh, mine is Pike for this episode. Uh, when he gets on the radio with the Ba'ul, at some point he's, he's like explaining why they're there. And he says, uh, we're looking for a red angel. Are you familiar with the red angel? God, so dumb. It's like, Pike, come on. Like, that is obviously a colloquialism that you guys are using in lieu of anything better to call this thing. But these guys aren't going to know that. Your, your universal translator is not going to be able to parse that. It's not good. Like, it's the logic falls apart. Yeah. You know, it's it's one of those things where is it is Pike that dumb or did somebody miss that in the script? I don't know. I don't know. I noticed that too. That's a good call, Ben. Did you have a drunk Shimoda? Uh my Shimoda is going to go to Saru, but not for anything super obvious. 
I think Saru has arranged his quarters in such a way that no one will assign him a roommate. And I think that's a choice. <laughs> I think he's like the guy who takes a, uh, a, a companion peacock on an airplane because he, because he needs it uh, to get through the flight. Like, I think this is a way to get a solo room. Yeah. Like, this, this is part of my culture, man. You can't put a second bed in here. I got to grow my flowers. There's also like not really anywhere comfortable to sit down for anybody else. Yeah. You know, it's like just his bed and a bunch of plants. Yeah. So, uh, so it really sends a message. I was always envious in college of the of the people who had the single dorm room that was yeah. obviously made for two, but like through some crazy reason they got the single. That's what Saru's done here. I admire it. I had a, a dorm room in college that for the first three weeks of one semester i did not have a roommate and i thought i wasn't gonna get one. Oh no and then a guy got assigned to my room oh, and i no. was it wasn't his fault but i was unable to forgive this guy <laughs> i was <laughs> i was so hostile to him for an entire it was terrible you're i mean you talk a lot about uh about my attitudes and my grudges and stuff but your hostility i imagine would be Totally withering. Yeah. Uh, you know, not my proudest moment. <laughs> I look back on those days with regret. I already jacked it on that entire side of the room. <laughs> yeah, I kind of, I did to that room what Saru did to his. I covered it in my own uh, life forms that, that reminded me of home. Ugh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, gross. <laughs> Uh, ben, do you have any predictions as you uh, talk about what might be coming up on the next episode of Star Trek Discovery? Uh, well, we have a little we had a little vasectomy about the next episode uh, at the end of this episode. Uh, it shows um, Michael Burnham visiting a candly place, maybe on Vulcan, and then a uh, a shuttle trip into a space anomaly in which they meet a mechanical matrix squid. And yeah. also, like, some roundhouse kicking. Really looks uh, 20,000 leagues under the sea. <laughs> <laughs> you remember that SNL sketch with no. Phil Hartman? It's one of the great Phil Hartman sketches. Wow. Like, the only comedy portion of it is the repeated, <laughs> the repeated line reading of the crazy <laughs> leagues word. <laughs> the man they called... Oh, 20,000 leagues under the sea. No! Yeah, we're getting uh, another Spock tease here, aren't we? Yeah, looks like we're actually going to meet him next step. You think? Really? I mean, he's in, the, he's in the package. I feel like he's been in other packages, has he not? He was in the, like, this season on... Right. Which was in the first episode, but I don't think we've seen him since then. Do you care anymore? Do you? <laughs> I kind of don't care, Ben. Oh no, Adam! <laughs> I mean, I'm all I'm saying is you could remove Spock from the season entirely at this point and like make whoever it is, like yeah. a mystery person, and I think my investment in this mystery would be the same. Wow. Well, maybe, uh, maybe I'll start to win you back next step. Do you think Spock's the Red Angel? I do. Wow. Here's another prediction, Ben. Fuck. Culber is not in love with Snabbits anymore because. He's a new person without a past. Like, yeah. like the doctor said so. Like you're you're shiny and new. 
Like, he has to start all over. He's not in love with Stamets in this, in this version of him. Maybe he and Saru will get together. Maybe he and Pollard will get together. Whoa. Like, like maybe everything changes for him. What do you think about that? Doctor, date thy doctor. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, like, uh, are Stamets and, and Culber cohabitating since his recovery, or has he been living in Six Bay? It seems like he's just been on that bio bed the entire time. That doesn't look comfortable. Hey, Ben, how would you like to be spending so much time in a place where you were killed? (laughs) It's a good thing they scrubbed off the chalk outline. (laughs) It's like by the side of the highway, there's still like flowers and and crosses and stuff in the six bay where he he passed. When they were wheeling him in, when they brought him from engineering, (laughs) he went through the door that says Hugh Culber Memorial yeah. Six Bay and he's like what the fuck <laughs> oh, that's great <laughs> anyways we should let Rob's take it from here take it away Rob's the greatest discovery is a maximum fun podcast Hosted by Adam Pranica and Ben Harrison. And it's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is by Adam Ragusia. Head on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate to support the ongoing production of our show. And a nice free way to support the show is to head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at CutForTime. And I'm at Rob K. Schulte. All right, thanks. We'll see you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.